Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. The noble thing is to stand and take responsibility for your sin. Because God knows you and I are going to sin. The question is, what will we do when we feel like we're caught? What will we do when we sense that we're had? What are we going to do when we feel guilty in our gut? Are we going to fight it? Are we going to make excuses? Are we going to take a defensive posture? Or are we going to say, God, you're right, I blew it. No one likes having their mistakes pointed out. And yet sometimes it's exactly what we need to hear. Loving confrontation can help us course correct before bigger mistakes happen. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is continuing our study through 2 Samuel and reminding us that when we're confronted with our sin, we have a choice. We can either take personal responsibility and work to make it right, or we can double down and fight the accusation. We're learning the right response to wrong decisions. Well, here's Pastor Mike. Just this week, I saw a mom with her son. Her son was probably 10, 12 years old in a public setting, in a public place. And there they were going about their business. But I happened to notice in their dialogue that this mom was probably the nicest mother I'd ever seen, dote over a a 12-year-old. And she was so kind, and she spoke so, so nicely in such nice tones. And then I listened to the young pre-adolescent boy respond to his mother. You've seen this, haven't you? Mom is as nice as a mom can be. And this kid who thinks the world revolves around him acts toward his mother with such disrespect, with such hurtful words, with such cavalier comments, and such dishonoring statements. I want to take that kid pull him behind the building and, and talk nicely to him about, uh, <laughs> about how blessed he was to have a mom like that. Because how many people don't? And you and I, as children of the king, have a parent that dotes on us. We have a parent, a spiritual father, who gives us and gives us and keeps giving to us all the good things we have in our lives. And we may not see it as a direct offense because it's indirect. And you may say, well, you've talked a lot about offending Christians, and I recognize that God has a personal relationship with them, but but he doesn't feel that way toward the vile and the rebellious person that I'm angry with or that I've hurt this week. You bet there is a connection. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot it down, look it up later in James chapter 3, verse number 9. It says that we should not be people who out of our mouth praise God in a worship service like this and then go out and curse men because those men, the Bible says, are created in the image of God. Do you recognize that the kinds of sins that we commit, even if they're against the most vile person on earth, God takes personally because he created them? Oh, he may not be their spiritual heavenly father, but he is their father by, by means of creation. And God says, you have no right to be ugly, mean, cruel, sinful against anybody. And when you are, it offends me. We need to learn to hate the inequity of our sin. And perhaps like this passage, we should see it that clearly. God gives good, we return it with evil. Another passage you may want to jot down, Psalm 109, I think it's verse 5. They repay my kindness with hatred. They repay my friendship with evil. 
I mean, think about the way that God gives to us. Sin ought to break our hearts. We ought not punch in the little keystrokes that we think will get our our relationship all healed up without really allowing it to affect our heart. Still in our passage, 2 Samuel 10, look what happens in verse 6. Oh, it's a terrible inequity. And perhaps it started to dawn on the king of the Ammonites and the Ammonite nobles that maybe they had done a wrong thing. And David tucks his ambassadors away in this town of Jericho and lets them get healed up and fixed up and their beards grow back. And we see his response to this and perhaps they catch in their conscience and their heart that this was really a bad thing. Look at how it's stated in the text, verse 6. When the Ammonites realized they had become, I love the poetic language of the scripture, become a stench in David's nostrils. It says in the middle of verse 6 that they were really sorry, they repented, they sent a fruit basket to the, the ambassadors, they, they asked for the forgiveness of the king, and they said, please forgive us, we, we blew it, we didn't realize you were really being nice to us. You see that all there in verse 6? You don't see that because they did what we often do. They took a defensive posture. They sensed in the pang of their conscience that they had blown it. They had done something wrong. And instead of fessing up, what do they do? Look at it. They hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rohab, from Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and 12,000 men from Tob. Okay, what's that mean? Translation. They got an army together. Now, that would seem to be the wrong thing to do. And yet it's the most natural human reaction when we feel the pang of guilt. When you and I feel the pang of guilt, we follow in the footsteps of our great, 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 great grandparents who sat there in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and God said, did you eat from the tree of the, 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 the knowledge of good and evil? I told you not to eat from it. Did, did you partake of that? Did you eat it? And, and what did Adam say? Yeah, God, gee, I'm really sorry. I'm caught. You nailed me. I blew it. I wish. He compounds his sin. He doesn't admit it. He makes an excuse. And what's his excuse? Most convenient person, right? It's her. She's the, she's the gal. It's the woman you gave me. She talked me into this. It wasn't really me. It wasn't all me. So God turns to her. Okay, Eve, did you eat from this tree that I told you not to eat from? What did Eve say? It's a snake. I mean, the snake, I mean, he had such a good sales pitch on this deal. He made it sound like it had to happen. And I was just, you know, I just was listening. I, Happens all the time. Excuses. Do you know what God longs to hear when he inflicts in our conscience that pang of guilt about something we've just done? Just wants to hear confession. He just wants us to say, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong. That's what he wants to hear. That's why he puts guilt in our lives. Guilt is to drive us to say, I'm sorry, I blew it, it was wrong. And yet so often we make excuses we rationalize, we justify, and in doing so, we take a defensive posture. And we say, I have to defend myself here. You don't understand, God. There were reasons I did this. God, you, you, the, the scenario, it led me to that. And I find that people that are good at making excuses are people that rarely drop to their knees in repentance and confession. And yet God is longing to see more repentance and confession in our lives and a whole lot less excuses. Don Shula, the winning coach of the Dolphins, was a long time ago, you may remember this, uh, caught with his microphone on on the sidelines while coaching a game once. <laughs> he pulled a 
player aside, and the mic was on, of course, you know, everybody's listening in the country, and he chews out this player with a string of profanity that just curled people's hair. And they heard this, and it was, it was just, you know, a big, big snafu. Everybody sent letters in, all the people listening that uh, were offended by that, and they, they wrote this, these letters, called, told, you know, all the respect we had for you is gone. Well, I wasn't much on Shula, but after I heard his response to this, I was quite impressed. Shula wrote back everybody, it said, that wrote him, that had a return address on their envelope. And he personally apologized to every person. He made no excuses, and he ended his letter this way. I wrote it down. I thought it was so impressive. He said, I value your respect, and I will do the best I can to earn it back. I thought his stock just went up. Because the noble thing is to stand and take responsibility for your sin. Because God knows you and I are going to sin. The question is, what will we do when we feel like we're caught? What will we do when we sense that we're had? What are we going to do when we feel guilty in our gut? Are we going to fight it? Are we going to make excuses? Are we going to take a defensive posture? Or are we going to say, God, you're right, I blew it. Ken Blanchard put it this way, there are two ways to gain respect. One is to act nobly. The other is, when you fail to do so, you make no excuses. That's good advice for you and I. Because the Bible is filled with characters that, when caught, make excuses. And then there are a few that God holds up on a pedestal and says, Here are men after my own heart, and they're not men that live perfectly righteous lives. They're men like you and I, frail and flawed, who, when they make mistakes and are convicted in their heart, they don't redouble their efforts to take a defensive posture. They fall to their knees and they say, God, I'm sorry. God's looking for repentance in our life. Proverbs 28, 13, it's worth jotting down the reference, memorizing later. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but he who confesses it and renounces it finds mercy. Why don't we do that? Why do, why do we run? Why do we make excuses? Because we're prideful people. And to renounce my sin is to admit that I'm wrong. To confess my sin is to agree that I've gone down the wrong path. Even the word in Greek, it's so powerful. The New Testament, metanoia, this word means to, to do a 180, to turn around. And in the day before global positioning satellites and maps on every camel, people would often get lost and have to ask for directions. Right? We hate to do that now, particularly us men, right? We don't like directions. Because if we have to ask directions, I may have to turn around. And if I have to turn around and backtrack, that shows I was going the wrong direction. We don't like that. Because there's this big thing tattooed across our soul, and it's called pride. And God says, you know what, you've got to get past that. That's why God says things to us like, I'm opposed to the proud. But I'll give grace to the humble. You'll find mercy. I'll be kind. We can restore you. We can get up. We can move on. I'll forgive you. But you've got to confess it. You can't rationalize. You can't justify it. You can't look at God and say, yeah, I did it and it was wrong, but. No buts. we got to say no. It's all about genuine, sincere, open humility. God, I blew it. And I admit it. Is that a part of your life? Do you find yourself praying that prayer regularly? One that's really hurt by the inequity of sin that is, I put it this way in your outline, number two, quick to repent. Be quick to repent. Because when we're not quick to repent, we're just prolonging our pain. We're just prolonging the problem. We're digging a deeper hole. Every day you go without confessing your sins on a matter, you're digging a deeper and deeper pit. And according to Psalm 32, as David talked about a time in his life of concealing his sin, and it wasn't very long, but when he suppressed it and concealed it, he said, my my energy and my strength was sapped from me. 
He said, your hand was heavy upon me. He said, it was like I was walking around in the desert in the heat of summer. My, my whole vitality was taken away from me. Some people sit here this morning and they, they say they're depressed. They say they feel bad. They have emotional baggage in their life. Do you know how many of those people that feel that way, they feel that way for one basic reason? I'd say a majority of people that call themselves depressed are dealing with guilt, guilt that they're not willing to fess up to. And that's critical. It's got to start there for us. We've got to say, I've got a bad feeling today. I'm not feeling up to par. Perhaps it's because I've got sin to confess in my life. You know one of the reasons I don't want to confess my sin to God? Because I know oftentimes when I confess my sin to God, he, he, he may force me to confess my sin to someone I've wronged. Do you see where we're just opening this thing up when, when I confess my sin? It's another reason I'll take a defensive posture. If I can tell God there was a good reason for this, then, then I don't have to say I'm sorry to him, and I certainly don't have to go to that person and say I'm sorry to them. But you understand there's a tight connection between those two. It's not just confessing my sin to God. The Bible makes it clear, James 5, I'm supposed to be confessing my sin to one another. And if I've wronged you, I need to come and I need to tell you that. And that's what makes this so incredibly hard, but you realize there's no room for pride in that equation. But don't wait. The Ammonites waited, and watch what happens in the next verse. Verse number 7. When they weren't quick to repent, something happens. And it always happens when you and I, as children of God, don't repent. And in some cases, even in the non-Christian world, this happens, and so it is in verse 7. On hearing this, that is that the Ammonites had hired a bunch of mercenaries from the Aramean country, David says, well, looks like we have a war on our hands. And he sends Joab, his commander, out with the entire fighting army of Israelites. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate. While the Arameans, this is the mercenaries that the Ammonites hired, of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Micaiah, were themselves by themselves in open country, you can see they're kind of getting sandwiched in here. We've got the mercenaries coming, the hired fighting men. We've got Joab and the Israelites backed up the, the Ammonites against their city gate. Now look at verse 9. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and he deployed them against the Arameans coming up behind him. And he put the rest of the men under the command of his brother Abishai and deployed them against the Ammonites who were fighting in front and behind. Joab says, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you come to my rescue. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come to your rescue. Be strong, though, and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God, for Yahweh will do what is good in his sight. And you know, if that statement ever comes true, that in this case, the Ammonites were in the wrong and the Israelites were in the right, and God, if he's going to do the right thing here, is going to make sure that the Israelites win this battle. And that's what happens, verses 13 and 14. Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans. And they fled before him. No surprise there, right? Verse 14, when the Ammonites saw that their hired mercenaries, the Arameans, were fleeing, well, they fled before Abishai, and they went into the city. Yay! Israelites win. So Joab returns from fighting the Ammonites, and they come with a big ticker tape parade to Jerusalem. Everything, everybody's happy, right? End of story, end of chapter. Except, you know, the fruit baskets come, and everybody says they're sorry, right? No, I got a few more verses here, don't you? Here's the problem, verse 15. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they cried, they wept, they confessed their sins, they said they were sorry, they sent apologies. No. They did what we often do. They, what? Regrouped. <laughs> they just didn't learn. Now, you don't see the Ammonites doing that. I guess they learned their lesson. But the Arameans did, and had a dazer, and the Arameans brought it from the river, they went to Halam, and Shobach was the commander of the army, and all that was going on, but we get the battle then in verses 17 and 18. This is the second battle now that the Arameans have been through. 
When David was told of this, he gathered all of Israel. They crossed the Jordan. They went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. Guess who's going to win? Verse 18. But they fled before Israel. Now we get a body count. I'm assuming this is a body count that comes because it's a worse defeat than the defeat that took place in verses 13 and 14. Verses 17 and 18, this is a bigger defeat. Why, what happens here? 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers were killed. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings and vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace. There you go. Finally, with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. No kidding. Now, I look at this passage and I see all this taking place. And I see two distinct groups. I see the Ammonites and I see the Arameans. And I see the Ammonites getting whooped. And I see the Arameans getting whooped. The Ammonites say, forget this, we're out of here. We must have been wrong, I'm sorry. Let's just get in our city, close the gates, and forget about all this. But the Arameans do what? They regroup. We're going to fight this thing. We may have lost the first round, but we're going to keep fighting because we were right, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't go through all this humiliation. And, and you know what? We, we had reason to treat those, del- those ambassadors that way, or at least the Ammonites did, so we're going to fight this thing. And they keep fighting. they already been spanked once. I got two kids at home. Might as well call them the Ammonites and the Arameans. Because <laughs> they're very much like that. I got one kid that one spanking is enough. You know what I'm saying? You got kids like this? They don't get spanked twice for the same thing. They're, they're smart kids. They, they realize the connection. I do this. It hurts. I don't want to do this. I'm sorry. You know, they get spanked for a lot of different things, but only once per sin. That's the way it should work. That's nice. And I got the Aramean kid. I'm not calling him stupid. He's a sharp kid. Don't worry about his intellectual development. He's coming along just fine. But when it comes to violation and disciplinary action, he doesn't seem to get it. Oh, he recognizes this means pain, but he thinks in some weird way that he's going to win this thing, that he's going to convince Dad that maybe this time it won't be wrong. Maybe this time it'll be okay. And he fights me. Thankfully, he's only this big. And I win. But you've got to recognize if this is the way it is in my family, how do you think it is with with God? I mean, here is a God who the only time we see him recorded in Scripture is laughing that I can think of, at least Psalm 2. He's laughing when people decide to fight him, when people rebel and say, no, God, you're wrong and we're right. And it says God in heaven laughs. Do you think God is going to let you win in a battle of who was right and who was wrong, in a battle of justifying and rationalizing and excusing your sin, there's no way. I put it this way in your outline number three. If you and I are going to respond rightly when we make the wrong decisions, not only do we need to hate the inequity of sin, not only do we need to repent quickly, but number three, we need to learn from our spankings. Because perhaps we don't realize that we've done wrong, so God applies the pressure to our hiney and it starts to hurt and we cry out because of financial problems, health problems, relational problems, work problems, whatever God uses in our sophisticated lives to get us to come to the place where we recognize we've done something wrong. You got two choices. You can confess your sins and repent after the first spanking, or you can keep rebelling and saying, No, God, but God, you don't understand. And you will be in for round two, and then round three, and then round four. And I've learned this in my own life, and I see it in passages like this. The spankings seem to get exponentially worse. Do you realize that with God? He will win. You're fighting some sin in your life that you in some way have been spending your energy saying it's okay, it's not bad, God, you don't understand, here's my excuse for it. 
And has God already started to apply the paddle to your spiritual life? And he said, that's wrong. And here's some pain for me to show you that that's wrong. Don't be like the Arameans. Don't regroup. Don't try to beat God at this. You can't. What God's looking for in our lives is a tender heart, a heart that's quick to repent. And if we don't repent at the pang of our conscience, then we ought to repent when we're being spanked and we lose the battle. Because if we don't repent then, God will make sure that he brings more hurt and more pain into our lives until we get it. And that may sound cruel to you, but it works, doesn't it? Hebrews 12 says that's how he treats us, like a father. And the word that's used in the Greek language in Hebrews chapter 12 is not that he gives us a time out and not that he speaks with us in loving tones. The word is to scourge. It means to spank. And God brings into our lives things that hurt. And he says, I want to bring these things into your life so that you will be broken in your heart, that your spirit won't constantly grip onto sin and hang on and make excuses. young kid in an antique store, he wanders off to the back and finds an old antique pot, sticks his hand in it, gets his hand stuck in the jar. His mom in horror realizes this as he's trying to get his hand out of this jar. Owner comes over, greases up his wrist, puts on some soap, puts the oil, does everything possibly can to pull this kid's hand out of this very expensive jar, this vase that it's in. Finally, they go to the back room. Mom standing on one side, owner holding onto the pot, brings out a hammer. Mom looks at the price tag. And just as they're about to break this vase around this kid's wrist, kid says, Mom, would it help if I let go of the quarter? <laughs> yeah, that would help. Some of us are fighting God right now. And we're hanging on to our sin. And we're stubbornly and rebelliously saying, God, I don't think it's wrong. But God's pecking at your heart saying, no, it is wrong. You need to confess it. You need to repent. You need to change your behavior. You need to hate the inequity of this, that this is hurting me, a God that's done so much good for you. And you need to let it go and leave it right here. You and I are going to sin. Proverbs says, the righteous man falls seven times. But you know what the next phrase says there, Proverbs? And yet he gets up. The question for you and I is, how long are we going to be down? When are we going to get up? Maybe today would be the day when you say, God, that's how I need to respond. Convicting words from our Bible teacher, Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point and a message called The Right Response to Wrong Decisions. You know, a great way to learn how to develop that right response to God is by joining us on this program every day as we study God's Word. And if you ever miss a program, you can download the free Focal Point mobile app to listen anytime, anywhere. You can also listen on demand when you visit our broadcast archives at focalpointradio.org. Well, to help you go deeper in your understanding of God's plan for salvation, this month we're featuring a timeless classic from the beloved British preacher Charles Spurgeon, who was known for his thoughtful and precise biblical exposition. It's a book titled All of Grace. It clearly and concisely explains the futility of relying on our own good works for salvation, because we all need God's grace. We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks when you make a donation to Focal Point this month. This book is perfect for anyone who questions the validity of their salvation. Just call 888-320-5885, or you can give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, 
Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. As a partner, your regular support plays a crucial role in helping us plan for the future, and we're so grateful. So sign up today when you call 888-320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. And by the way, if you've never let us know you're listening before, today's the perfect day to connect. When you do, we're going to send you a special gift. It's a booklet that helps you understand who God is. It's titled Attributes of God. Find it at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we learn essential strategies for beating temptation, right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.